the existentialist thing in my mind is less us creating our own meaning and more us discovering meaning that mm. is already there in the universe, mm. that the universe is laden with meaning. It's, it's pregnant with, it's full of, of, of meaning and value. And um, it's, it's just waiting to be discovered, right? And humans are in a very unique position to be able to create and observe and participate in things like beauty and goodness and truth to whatever degree we can actually know it. Um. Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. This is our final episode on Near Automata. The last one, the last yep. one. And I can guarantee you we aren't going to cover everything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the extensive universe beyond this game that still sort no. of connects with this game uh, has to offer, but we are going to cover a lot of it. Yes. Um, next week, we will get started with our Final Fantasy 16 yeah. analysis. The game will be launching as of when this goes live tomorrow. So this goes nice. live on Wednesday. Tomorrow will be Thursday. The game will go live. Yesterday we will have done an all-day live stream. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed that. At the moment of recording this, there's still some technical issues I'm working out on how yeah. it's going to work, but we're going to do it. I'm committed to it, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We do currently have a poll up right now for what game we will play after Final Fantasy 16 is done. It, we're going back to tactical RPGs again. Yep. So we have Ogre Battle, or not Ogre Battle, yeah, Ogre Battle. Uh, the, the 64? Yeah, no, no, no. Um, oh, Tactics the original. Ogre. Tactics Ogre. Tactics, there That's we go. It, yeah. Tactics Ogre. <laughs> and then if I say Ogre Battle 64, now they're all going to be disappointed. <laughs> Sorry, I, I considered putting that one on there, yeah, but we since we had Tactics Ogre. Anyway, it's Tactics Ogre. Uh, Fire Emblem, Genealogy of the Holy War, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, and Vandal Hearts. Um, so if you'd like to you know, participate, cast your vote, head over to either Patreon or Subscribestar. Both of those polls are live now. Okay. So as you were saying, we're not going to be completely comprehensive yeah. and exhaustive, exhaustive on this. Yeah. That's not uh, uh, I, I've repeated this many times. I will again many more times. <laughs> That's not really the purpose of what we're doing here. No. But I did want to at least touch on a few things that I thought were cool. And now, essentially, we're taking any uh, spoiler warnings off yeah. the table. It's like, if you have not played the first near. Uh, near go Replicant slash Gestalt, you should just go play it now. Yeah, We have already done a podcast series on that, so if you want to kind of follow along with us the way you did on this, you can do that. But now, anything it's kind of anything goes in terms of discussion of those two games, because we're going to talk about some things that tie them together, some of the connections and things like that, and there was one, at least one more thing we hadn't gotten to yet with some of the philosophers we have not talked yet about Soren Kierkegaard, so no. I want to do that. Okay. Uh, and so that's kind of what's on the agenda today. It will be a little bit of a shorter episode, I think. We'll respond to a couple comments. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's kind of uh, what, I want to, what we want to do for today. Now, I do want to say about the comments from last week, just floored, blown away. People are beasts, apparently. Um, yeah. Really, really, really. Uh, feel so much peace about having said what I said um, and seeing so much sort of warm, yeah, uh, you know, acceptance 
uh, agreement and all that stuff. But I think even more so than all the people who were so kind and um, you know appreciative of, of what was said, I loved the people who still wanted to offer their thoughts in counterpoint to it. Some criticism, some, yeah. yeah. Um, that's because you love conflict. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> because it is your essence <laughs> as a human. It's true. That's a good point. No, but um, uh, every, everybody who did, did so, I feel very respectfully. And even yeah, if they yeah. were passionate about it, passionately dis in disagreement, because they felt, you know, it's easy for you to say this. You're in a privileged position, you know, these sort of things. Like that... I actually do appreciate reading that kind of thing. And, and I, I love challenging the things that I believe. So um, thank you for all that. I wish with all my heart I could sit down with each and every person because I read every comment. <laughs> there I have read every comment. It so was awesome. It was great. There's a lot of people who say, I don't know if you'll read this or whatever. You can rest assured I yeah. read your comment last the, week. The only way that we don't read comments is if it's like the episode's been out for like three months. Yeah, we, all the time. <laughs> like, we, we read all the comments at least for the first week yeah. of an episode, but right. by the time the next episode goes up, sometimes yeah. we don't always we, get We probably won't the see them after that. But yeah. I read every comment, and there's not one of them that I felt was inappropriate or, you know mean-spirited or condescending or anything, even when they were passionately disagreeing. And I feel like a lot of good points were made. So thank you. And help. thank you for helping me always keep myself in check mm. to always reconsider what I'm thinking. Am I really on the right track with this? Um, I really appreciate it. And like I said, I can't, but I wish I could sit down one-on-one -on -one with everybody and have a conversation about the things that they're worried about and, and I'm, I'm confident that I could come to some level of understanding with everybody who commented last week. It was great. Nice. There was nobody who was there to troll. Nobody who was there just to be. <laughs> Not from what I said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was, it was great. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Now, um, kind of hard to know exactly where to start with this. Maybe we should start with Kierkegaard. Oh, that sounds um, good. I brought up the, um, the, the philosophy book. Oh, yeah. You know, that little section on him. Mm-hmm. You got a some yeah, it's good. So at the very there. beginning here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but at least in part, um, the the aspect of Kierkegaard's philosophy that this book that um, Yoko Taro um, probably read on read the toilet while <laughs> sitting on the toilet no, was uh, that will never get old. I just love it. Um, it it says anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, um, and it's funny because Kierkegaard talks about freedom like absolute true freedom. Mm -hmm is the most terrifying thing in the world. Mm. Like to know that you have like this level of control over yourself and people around you to where you could do something really terrible um, at any moment. He, he gives the example of standing on the edge of a tall building. Mm -hmm. And part of the fear is that you're going to fall. But another yeah. part of the fear is that you could so easily jump oh, on yep. purpose, mm -hmm. right? And how the freedom of being able to do whatever you want prompts this like horrible dizziness, he calls mm. it, this anxiety. Um, and so <coughs> he talks about that a lot. Um, and then of course he is one of the four uh, fathers, you could call him of, of um, existentialist, existentialist philosophy. Yeah. Um, it, it, his was a little bit different from what eventually became like Jean Paul Sartre's kind of thing. Yes. Um, but he had a very similar, um, kind of idea that like you, you can, forge your way in the world and, and make meaning. But in order to do so, you have to be completely free. And yeah. the fact that you are free is horrifying, but it also leads to the possibility that you can construct something um, 
you know, something something great, something that uh, you you can you know find that meaning yeah. to your own life in uh, a manner that befits you, mm-hmm. and that there is something freeing about that. But that freedom yeah. in and of itself is just horrifying. Yeah, it was very interesting, very very good. Um, so speaking about you know the differences between his sort of form of existentialist philosophy versus like Jean-Paul Sartre's. I think the easiest yeah. thing to point out would be, you know, sort of the religious beliefs, right? Yes. So Kierkegaard yeah, yeah, yeah. was staunchly Christian. He was very Christian. Um, um, he wasn't a lover of the organized religions. That's the part that yeah. he didn't. He like. was very much so a person, his personal belief in Christ was, was immense. Yeah. Uh, but his trust in the institution of Christianity as he understood it, which was the Danish Lutheran church, um, was yeah. not there. He well, did not appreciate it was, that. Um, state run, uh, <coughs> yes. religion. Yeah. There. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, Roman Catholic church was the church yeah, of England, yeah, you yeah. know, all that back then. It's just kind of was a common thing. It was, um, it was like a duality of power. That yes. was the cultural power. That was the church. And then there was the political power. That was the, the state government. And back then, there usually was no real difference. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know because they would fight each other. They would fight each other. But you're right. Whoever whoever controls the culture, and then also know that the Pope crowned the king. Yeah. So you're right. Like in that, the state leader was ultimately subservient to To the the, one above him who gave him the authority to rule. Yeah. Um, So I, I think a good way to maybe summarize. Kierkegaard in this respect is to say that he was just very, very individualist. He, yes, he, yeah, oh he yeah. didn't really like religion, maybe even principally because it creates sort of a herd mentality where people don't think for themselves. And most importantly to him, do not have a very personal sort of relationship to God yeah, and yeah. use that to guide them through their lives versus an, or an institution and they're sort of he 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 believed very much about the personal one-on-one kind of relationship yeah. with with God. Um he considered that many Christians who were relying totally on external proofs of God were missing out on the true Christian experience. Yeah, which was subjective. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So he wrote a he lot about on that. objective and subjective truth. Yeah. Well, and specifically that truth is subjective yes. like in a, in a real sense. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So anyway, that's kind of who the guy is now his his uh the the machine with his name in the game was the leader yeah. of the death cult <laughs> that <laughs> to be pascal goes to and his head falls off and yeah, they all start yeah. going we shall or we shall become as gods yep. you shall become as gods whatever um so you know it can be a little perplexing at first like why is that machine yeah. the leader of a, a religious institution that is formulating <laughs> a herd mentality yeah. and, and totally collectivist and not at all individualistic? You Why know, was that robot named? I think it was Kierkegaard. Soren or Kier- yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember. You know what's hilarious? I remember I mentioned before about how your religion still needs to align with the universe in order to exist right into the future. Yeah. You can formulate a system, but whether or not that system continues is entirely, um, relative to the degree that it 
conforms to the cosmos itself, mm-hmm. right? And this <laughs> this kind of a religion uh, just kind of gets rid of itself very quickly. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Uh, clearly not one that is uh, consummate with uh, the cosmos itself. No. And uh, I guess like my reading on this is more about this is what Kierkegaard opposed. Mm, yeah. It's not named that because that machine is supposed to represent Kierkegaard's yeah. philosophy, but rather what Kierkegaard was against, what, y- he, what know, he spoke out against. You know what I couldn't help but think about as I read this from the philosophy book, book though, um, is that that fear, that anxiety yes. and fear that Kierkegaard talks about that, that surrounds any time you have true freedom, you, you get this, uh, this existentialist dread, really. Um, I started thinking about how um, name is Pascal. No, how Pascal, Pascal had instilled thing. fear into the children mm-hmm. and how it went so horribly wrong, kind of in a similar way. Yeah. Right. And so you've got Kierkegaard who talks about just the, the fear of true freedom that you could just jump off a cliff at any point. Um, I feel like there's a connection with what Pascal's talking about, not least because it happened in the same place, yes. uh, more or less. Um, but also that let's say this leader didn't want people to jump around killing themselves, but this leader did teach <laughs> the absolute freedom to do whatever you want. Right. And the, and that with that freedom just naturally comes that fear. Yes. Right. And that the people ended up killing themselves. I feel like there's a connection between um, Pascal and yeah. Kierkegaard in that sense. Not that Kierkegaard wanted it. Pascal didn't either. Um, but that once Kierkegaard was gone, they didn't know what to do with his philosophy. And they just decided like, jump yes this is for me actually like a a personal reading from near automata this time that has been one of the strongest points that has stuck out to me was the whole pascal taught the children to be afraid and then they ended up uh, committing suicide or whatever and we talked about you know the validity of whether or not children Children, would or would not actually commit suicide like this they're missing something uh beyond the point really yeah yeah, it is it really is (laughs) the the point i feel like to take away from this is the consequences of using sort of a fear-based approach to education or uh, just spreading (laughs) your message or whatever and this actually relates a little bit to some of the replies we got last week. You know, I, w- I was kind of try- trying in that intro last week to talk against this idea of how we're all pitted, engineered to um, consider people outside of our tribes as enemies. As enemies, yes. And, and yep. it, the, the way that that happens is by essentially fear-mongering, which is exactly what our media does today. Um, so... I guess to not get too bogged down in it for sake of time, but just because I, it's, it's a little bit of a continuation of mm-hmm. that topic from last week that I still feel is really important. Um, you know, people were bringing up, well, there are people out there who are trying to uh, take away my rights or who are trying to right. not say that a, a person like me shouldn't exist. And, um, you know, it's a, you're sitting in a place of privilege, not being someone like me who... Therefore, uh, you can take the position you take because you're not being threatened. And um, first of all, I want to give validity to that point. Like that is, there's a very, very true sentiment in that. Because you talked about how you purposefully avoid being involved in any groups, right? right? But that is that is kind of a, a privilege that you, sure. that you have. That sure you is. don't have to be involved in any groups. That I don't have groups. to, yeah. Uh, that other people, it's like you... you and honestly, I don't know. I do feel that people need community even still. Yes. Um, you know, 
that people need belonging and that suffering with other people is better than suffering by yourself. For sure. Right. Yeah. And life is suffering. Therefore, you know, for sure. Um, so yeah, I would, I would agree with that as well. Yeah. So, um, actually that kind of ties into some thoughts I had on Kierkegaard too, because some of his biggest critics were essentially saying he's too individualistic and that his yeah. sort of sharp criticism against social, uh, institutions are just like, it goes too far. And, and, mm-hmm. and, the thought that I had was, um, and this isn't like perfect. I haven't like perfected this thought yet, but it, it, it's more or less that you're a lot stronger when you're with others, but in a group, you're also much dumber <laughs> than you are as an individual. <laughs> I have a lot. To, I, I almost have too much to say about this. We might have to talk about this later. Another time. It's because one of the things in order, and this is okay. So this, this would be at least a little bit pushback to what you had said um, in the previous episode mm-hmm. about, um, you know, trying to avoid any um, like identification with groups or any involvement yeah. or anything like that. Um, which is to say that, Every, in order to be part of a group, you have to sacrifice part of yourself. Yes. And everybody does. And that's true. The smallest group, which would be like a pair, like two people, like something like uh, marriage or even just a friendship, right? Mm-hmm. There are certain things that you just, you're not going to say it in front of your friend. You're yeah. not going to do certain things. You're not going to, it doesn't matter how much you want to. You have to sacrifice that part of yourself in order to have a friend, yes, right? right? And then imagine now you've got a bigger group. You've got a community. You've got a neighborhood. You've got a church. You've got a school. You've got a rec center. You've got like a library. It doesn't matter. Whenever you go somewhere where there's a large group of people, you can't do whatever you want. You can't yes. think or say or or behave however you want. You have to conform to some degree to the group, and that means taking down a lot of your idiosyncratic beliefs, opinions, ideas. Like you, you put them by the side, mm-hmm. and you leave them there for a while while you give yourself to this group. You yeah. you you sacrifice those things so that you can adhere to this larger group, and that the bigger the group is, the more unconscious the the behavior yes, because what right. you're sacrificing is what you consider yourself. It's your conscious self, mm-hmm. right? But all the subconscious elements are still there. And for everybody, they're still there. Right. And you end up getting into a group of thousands of people and there's no rational thinking happening here. Mm-hmm. The group is going to do and move and act as though it were an organism that um, seemingly has like its own wants or desires. They call it like a hyper organism, yeah. something like that. Um, but it's the uh, mix of everyone's like unconscious mind all mm-hmm. melded together and yeah. then it, that that group behavior can lead you towards um and this is what jung and to some degree freud as well believed um in uh at least for like the collective unconscious that that group behavior can lead you to understanding the individual unconscious mind mm. because these people all none of them can be really conscious and do what they want none of them the group's way too big for that everybody yeah. has to kind of sit down and be off to the side but the group's still moving you see this in like concerts and like mosh pit or in a a, a parade maybe not yeah. an organized parade but like um like just a large group of people outside like what's going to happen? It's going to start moving on its own. It'll develop these naturally develop these highways and ways people yep. can cross. It'll naturally kind of splinter off in these directions, kind of like an amoeba or like a slime or something. Um, but that is the unconscious behavior that people are just kind of acting in accordance with, but they all have a similar unconscious mind. And so that way it's almost like a hive mind. It's kind of separating things out. But um, the idea being that you can avoid that altogether because you want to remain 
your um, individual atomized self. I'm me. I'm not going to participate in any of that. I will always think my own thoughts and never mm. will I adopt somebody else's opinion uh, just for like politeness sake or just to adhere to a larger community that I don't personally believe in. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's healthy to give of a lot of those things of yourself, those mm-hmm. opinions, those perspectives, those, those uh, uh, beliefs, right? To, to give those up for a greater cause, which is the spiritual connection that people feel when they're all together in a group, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as something like a concert or something like that. Um, everyone's quiet when you're supposed to be quiet. Everyone's loud when you're supposed to be loud. And that one person who's like, I'm going to be loud when everyone's quiet. It's like, you're ruining it. You don't do that. You don't do that. You're going to get booed. You're going to get pushed out and people aren't going to have a good time. And it's not that people like hate you or want to be violent. It's just that you're, you're a little cancer in the body (laughs) and you, you need to be removed. Um, And there's a lot of people like that. Um, okay, that's my rant. Then. No, no, I but think there is a true connection amongst people, but they have to give of themselves. And I yeah. don't think that's a bad thing. No, I don't either. Um, uh, you know, speaking on like that balance between individualist thinking and, you know, collective, what you have yeah. to do, I like, like all things, I think that there's, there's a healthy balance and that healthy yeah. balance is not like defined. It's different for everybody, right? right. Like everyone's going to kind of decide what where they would fall on that and what makes them happy i think um, you you are um v- very introverted so yes. you will fall a it's lot more on the me. individual yeah, line it's right? easy for me to fall yeah. individualistic to just yeah. like chill at home and not really talk to people right yeah uh, but for someone who's an extreme extrovert they get all their energy from being yeah. in a group right? right so there's that part of that scale is the introvert extrovert totally it's totally right and that's kind of what yeah. i was going to say is okay. I, I i sort of read <laughs> Kierkegaard's stuff or somebody who's real individualist in, in term, uh, yeah. a, a lot of existentialist uh, philosophy actually sort of resonates with me for this reason because it is all kind of about freedom of the individual and you know think for yourself and I resonate with that because of my personality but you know somebody like my older brother who's a very 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 opposite of me very extroverted um, that's not very comfortable it doesn't make him very happy you know right so you know that is an important sort of point to of nuance to kind of put into what I was going over last week. Mm. And in the, in the, in the act of creating a podcast like this and putting my thoughts into the world, what's that going to naturally do is attract people like myself right. to come yeah, and yeah, resonate yeah. with what I say. So we also have to be careful of that too. Okay. Cause it, yeah, if you develop a community that's centered around you, <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but coming back around to the commenter um, and mm. talking about, you know, seeing oh, people right. as enemies, which is kind of the, the real point I wanted to make here. Oh, good, good. The fear-based stuff, the fear-based teaching is what is going on at such a, like, alarming rate in <laughs> sort of the information age that yeah. we're in right now. Remember how the um, internet was supposed to like connect everyone? Yeah. And, like, unite everybody? We were supposed to all understand <laughs> each other. And instead it's like kind of done the opposite. Yeah. It's well, you know, I think there are a lot of people, I mean a lot, way too many to even <laughs> begin mentioning who take advantage of this. Uh, there's a lot of money oh, to sure. be made oh, yeah. in the fear mongering that people do because sure. people are inclined to pay attention to something that scares them more so than, something that makes them feel peaceful. I, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there are many, many examples of that. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there, there's almost a, an element of that where you're fighting against human nature to try to dispel this. But <laughs> yeah. my point is, um, uh, 
let's just say, for example, right? Um, and and I'll, I'll make this clear. Well, let's see. Let me do a cut just in case okay. we want to maybe cut some of this out or something like that, make it easier for you. So specifically on like um, the, the issue of trans rights or like things like that going on right now, right? Um, uh, it's easy for me to sit and kind of see, and again, this is like the, the commenter was pointing out. It, it's mm. my privilege to not be affected kind right. of either way sure. by this personally. And mm. so I have, it's easy for me. It, it's a privilege of mine to be able to sit back and like observe sort of both um, sides yeah. fighting over this. On right? Monday morning quarterback, <laughs> like armchair quarterback, you're eating your yeah. chips, watching two sides fight. So yeah. I, I want to acknowledge that. Like right. I, I 100% know that that is correct to call me out and say that, that that's what's going on and it's easy for me. I agree. And that's also why maybe it's easier for me to look at people who are sort of debating both sides and, and see that and I'm not talking about like, uh, like big figureheads who are doing the fear mongering. Those are the people that I have no sympathy for, and oh, who sure. are exacerbating this problem and making it poisoning the well of our public discourse. I, I hate people of this kind. Okay, yeah. so what I'm talking about is, uh, uh, you know, John over here and Sarah over here, people just like you and me who mm -hmm. are sort of like getting this deluge of garbage being spit on them and who are susceptible to, uh, you know, the things that are being said that, that prey on their fears. Right. So when, when it's, when they say like, there are people out there who, who don't want people like me to exist, those people are my enemy. I'm not by any means out here trying to condemn anybody for feeling that way. I think that it's very natural to feel that way. What I am saying is it's easier for me to see one side who are afraid that someone's coming after their children in school oh, sure. and another side that is afraid they're coming after me. They don't want me to exist. Right. And to, and the, for this side to say this guy over here, John, the regular Joe Schmo guy over here is my enemy and doesn't want me to exist. Mm. And Sarah is coming after my children. Right. That's the part I'm saying is not true. These two people are not enemies. They're just afraid, really, really afraid. And they're the victim of the fear mongering that's going on. And I honestly think that if that you cut the tie there of like what these people are spewing, the, the people are telling you to be afraid. Yes. The people you, are saying you be cut afraid. off that source. You're Just cutting cut off, off head. you're cutting off a lot of nonprofits when you do that. You're cutting off a lot of money to be made I, from people who yeah. say you should be afraid of this. I'm or that. not saying that a we should of cut it off necessarily. I'm just as a thought experiment. I'm saying you do that. Yeah. And you just like sit these two people down. Oh sure. I do. think like way more often than not you would come to see this is a person who's a family, you know, oriented person concerned about their children and they're not getting fed that garbage in their ear every day and you could have a civil conversation and it wouldn't mm. be a problem the problem is that these two people have been made to think that john and sarah are their enemy like there's just a lot of people fee feeding on and and, and f feeding fear to you all the time yeah. and so that's that's what i'm trying to get at here is the fear-based approach which i i believe is what 
you know, Taro might be, might be, I don't know, but might be offering as a commentary about Pascal and maybe mm. about Kierkegaard. Right. Because this is a really long-winded way of getting around to the original point. It's all good. But um, that there are some severe consequences of trying, and no matter how well-intentioned you are, because I believe both Pascal and Kierkegaard and a lot of you know, religious leaders throughout time were very um, well-intentioned in what they did. Oh, of course. But the fear-mongering yeah. approach, the fire and brimstone approach right. of uh, teaching faith and in and adherence to the gospel is one just like any other type of fear-mongering that has pretty drastic and horrible consequences. And I believe that's playing out yeah. in our public political discourse now. Right. So... I don't know if you had something to add to that. Or, I don't. Um, yeah. I have a thousand things to add to that, but um, I think I think that's a pretty good place to leave it off. Yeah. Okay. So that's Soren Kierkegaard. I think we've covered basically all, all the philosophy, the philosophy stuff. I think there good. was one that we missed. If, if I remember correctly, it's actually Mix who brought this up. Um, it was the enemy that you fight as A2 out in the desert that it was like kind of a snake with all those big like the balls. ball snake yeah yeah what was what was it again mix mix oh hegel oh, yeah. hegel hegel the we he missed Hegelian that one dialectic and mix left a really good comment on that video um kind of explaining his uh can you tell me which episode that was again mix was that in episode 6 i think it was episode 6 or maybe 7 um but search yeah. out mix's comment he wrote that the note that the giant snake thing A2 fights is Hegel, named after the famed German philosopher George Wil Wilhelm Friedrich, Friedrich Hegel, <laughs> uh, 1770 to 1831, one yeah. of the most important philosophical figures of the modern age and yep. famed for his systematic investigations into the movement of world spirit. Talks about the zeitgeist. That's a Hegelian mm -hmm. idea. In a sense, we are all, uh, we all, we can all consider the thinkers that Near Automata is concerned with, Marx, Engels, Nietzsche, Beauvoir, Sartre, and Kierkegaard, as thinkers who have been thoroughly saturated with the Hegelian consciousness and rebelled against it in their own ways. So um, I'll leave the rest of that comment for you guys to kind of search out. Good. If you're more interested or to it's good. learn more about it, but it was great. I don't know what it yeah. has to do with the snake, though. I mean, <laughs> just the struggle we, of we, will. Against we're going to talk world. a lot about P33 here in a minute, oh, cool. which was a character from the first game and a machine character from the first game. The, the P in P33 stood for Pinocchio. So there wasn't <laughs> really any reason for that other than he Maybe. likes the story of Pinocchio and was wanting to reference it. In Pinocchio some way. is a great story. But, um, you know, as Mix was saying, like all these thinkers in this game were in some way sort of from yeah. the thought of you know, the Hegelian thought, like it kind of sprang what, where they went with things. Gotcha. But as for what, ha what it has to do with that boss, who knows? Who freaking knows? <laughs> Maybe nothing. But, Maybe nothing. Um, Hegel anyway. also, the Hegelian dialectic, you've got your thesis, then your antithesis, and then the synthesis being yeah. like a mix of the two. That's a Hegelian idea as well. Yeah, for sure. And he was kind of a precursor to <clears throat> Marx in a lot of ways. Well, Pinocchio probably is referring to the fact that P33 became conscious and in a way sort of became a real boy or at the very least um in becoming conscious was able to uh, be kind of an example to the other machines that they could become real boys and girls okay so um with that out of the way i think we're done with the philosophy stuff good 
Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the connections with the first near. Um, <laughs> was there anything? There's a bunch of small ones. While you were but... playing through the game, was there any? Because I know um, there yeah, was there once or twice <laughs> where I was kind of thinking, oh, that's like the first game. And then I kind of bit my tongue on it just to not spoil anything. Wow. Um, in particular, you know, when you first get down to the surface and the robots you're finding are not attacking you. And it, he even goes like one step further. In, in near Gestalt or Replicant, there's no call out to the fact that the shades aren't fighting you. You just kind of like mm. approach them and start killing them because that's just what you do right. as a game player. And yeah. then you learn the fact that they're actually not hostile. They're not attacking you. It makes you go, oh, you know, you start thinking about all the things he wants you to think about. Here, I think 9S like points it out directly. Like some of these machines are not hostile. They're not attacking mm, us. Right. Right. I don't but, think in the first near that you that it ever was pointed out. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, it was just something that I recognized as being similar. I think it's the first, not the first enemy in the game, because I know you have that opening section at the factory, where, you know, obviously everything there is hostile to you. But right after the intro sequence, it's the first set of enemies you really encounter in the city, at right? all. Yeah. That if you just run by them, they <clears throat> won't do anything. Yeah. So, you know playing with some similar things there. Um, but uh, I, I think the biggest one to talk about is the fact that Emil and Devil and Popola, yeah, yeah. who were major characters from the first game, are in Huge. this game. Um, Devil and Popola, though, apparently it's a different Devil and a different Popola. Uh, yeah, and we've kind of already covered them. Yeah. So we probably don't need to really speak about them too much at all. Not really. The connection but, is just that, yeah, they're yeah. in the game. <laughs> like they're in the game. Connection. They, you know, their models were the, at least a different set from them, but were kind of held responsible. I don't want to call them responsible, but were held right. responsible because they weren't able to stop our characters from doing what they did and killing yeah. the Shadow Lord. And ending the Gestalt project, it was all it failed. And so, like, now we no longer have a purpose, which yeah. was the whole kind of played into the whole theme of this game is how do we find purpose or meaning in a meaningless world where right. our gods are dead? Right. So, um, anyway, but Emil, the fact that Emil is in the game, this might be a yeah. huge surprise to people who <laughs> played the first game and didn't get like all the endings and see that Emil actually survived that. Yeah. Sacrificial sort of like scene where That's he... <laughs> right from Replicant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he he his head just like lands yes. in the desert somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so Pretty funny. At the end of the first game, Emil sort of commits a self-sacrifice to help yeah. the party get to the the final boss to be able to fight the Shadow Lord and he you kind of just see him shrinking into the abyss. He's all alone. It's like a really sad yeah. sort of moment where yeah. And you think, okay, he's dead. Yep. But I can't remember which. I think it might be ending C of Near Replicant, where his head just kind of pops back out in the desert. Yeah. And it's just a rolling head, and he survived somehow. <laughs> um, he kind of slowly, I thought he slowly kind of rebuilt his body. Yeah, oh, that's right, because in the, in the DLC, yeah. he's back, and he's in a body again, and he's and like he going around with around. Kine. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I don't know. But <laughs> the point is that he survived. Yeah. And he's basically an eternal being. He's immortal. He can't yeah. die. Yeah. So. Yet he maintains his innocence. So when the aliens attacked Earth, he was there and he was trying to fight against them. And in an attempt to do that, he continued to sort of like multiply himself, like clone himself, basically, create mm -hmm. copies of himself. 
so that there'd be a whole bunch of like powerful Emil dudes to like fight the aliens. The, the, the byproduct of that was each time he was copied, his memories became more fragmented and he sort of forgot who he was oh, entirely right. at a certain <laughs> That's point. That's right. Yeah. And there's just all these immortal Emil heads. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, right. Way after this conflict with the aliens is over, who don't really know who they are, um, don't really have any of their memories. And so mm. the Emil head that we find in that scene in like the shopping mall or whatever yeah. is one of these many, many copies. Copies. Who, you know, starts his little shop and you can go around and he like attaches his body to a little cart and he just drives around the world selling stuff. That's so funny. Um, but there's a side quest you can do for him where essentially you go around looking for Lunar Tears, which is Lunar the tears. flower the from the first game. Yeah. The one that... Is said um, to be medicinal. Yeah. Right? Yona was led to believe that this flower could cure her from the black scrawl, the the chlorination syndrome. It's not the chlorination syndrome. Well, that's chlorination syndrome was, a different thing. Uh, but this is the black scrawl. <laughs> the yeah. black scrawl, the, the disease that's infecting her in the game. Yeah. Uh, she's led to believe that this flower could heal her. Um, and this flower is important to Kaine, another character from that game. And so essentially it ended up being a symbol for kind of the whole group of you know their friendship and things like that. So you can find several of these lunar uh, lunar tier flowers throughout the world. And each one, each time you come across one, you can call Emil to come and he'll like regain a piece of his memory, like little by little mm. each time. And so by the end of it, uh, you'll actually end up down underground underneath where the, the shopping, shopping center. center is built. Yeah. And Kaine's house yeah. from the first game surrounded by a bunch of lunar tears is down there. And this was the yeah. place that the original Emil who cloned himself a million times liked to live and go and, uh, but you know, eventually lost all of his memories and whatever attachment he would have had to that place. Mm -hmm. um, so let me scroll down a little bit here because there's kind of like a whole bunch of different things he says. I'm not, I don't have the dialogue on hand, but right. um, so upon discovery of the first lunar tear, uh, they're greeted by an enthusiastic Emil who mentions that. So you, I think you have to do this before you get to C route because it's got to be 2B and, a, and, and um, 9S to do this part of the side quest. But then there's like a secret boss. I don't know if you saw this where you fight a bunch so. of Emil clone dudes. Oh, really? Uh, and it leads to ending Y, which is one of the oh, no. many, many other endings um, of the game. But. All of this extra stuff that we're talking about is stuff that I, well, <laughs> maybe not all of it. Some of it I will have done, um, but much of it is stuff that I kind of researched um, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the past week or so and not stuff that I actually experienced in my actual playthrough. Right. Okay, so anyways, he greets them and he mentions how the sight of the flower gives him this sort of surge of unfamiliar memories, uh, strange feelings. And he's like, anytime you find one of these, let me know. So when you find the second one, he recounts about this time when he stopped seeing people anymore. Um, and, and the sand started to sort of expand and the flowers were wilting. He's talking about the time when not, not only the humans who were basically extinct when the Gestalt program failed, but mm. the replicants were all dying out now. Yeah. So even all those people left in the villages from the end of the first game, they were dying out. They're yeah. dying out too. Yeah, they yeah. basically, there's no one left to keep that program going. The replicants had flaws inherent in them, which was the whole point. 
the souls of the humans were supposed to be kept in a place until these replicant bodies could be perfected and then they could be merged back together again. Yep. But they always continued to get this black scrawl and get sick and they would all die out. They have to start it over. And it was the overseers, the devil and popla models who were overseeing that. Yeah. So when there were no more gestalts, when there are no more human souls left, yeah. and devil and popla know had a reason to keep it going, they just all died. So all the replicant bodies died out and Emil sort of, what do you call it? He's remembering not seeing people around anymore and the desert mm -hmm. started to spread more. And um, So the third flower, Emil remembers a time when the aliens started invading the world and he admits that he forgot something important about a person that he wanted to protect, someone that was important to him, but he can't remember. The fourth flower, Emil reveals to the pair that the war with the aliens wasn't going well, and to combat the failure of their operations, he decided to create multiple versions of himself. Unfortunately, those versions were lost to the war as well. 9S asks Emil how old he is, but the latter cites it is a memory he didn't uh, need to remember. Um, another funny thing about this, I should mention this too, um, it's kind of a, a great kind of use of comic relief. Emil's funny in the yeah. first game too. Yeah, yeah. I think you I remember you saying he was your favorite character. He was in the my first absolutely game. my favorite character. Yeah, he's yeah. he's awesome. But um so you'll you'll you have like communication with him, you know, like uh, through a com link or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um so anytime 9S comes upon a flower and he's like, maybe I should tell Emil about this. And he calls him up and he's like, hey, yeah. you know, like uh, we found a lunar tear. Okay, don't move. I'll be right there. Yeah. And he's like, well, I it's don't a, really. like a little kid, a very excited yeah. kid. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, I don't really have time to sit and wait around. Like, what? And then he's just there. <laughs> he's like, what the heck? Like, how'd you get here so fast? He's like, sorry for the wait. Like, let me tell you something <laughs> about like what I remember. And then the, it's, that escalates each time. So he's there faster. Every yeah. time. So the next time he yeah, calls him, and he's, he's like in the middle of explaining like, hey, we're here. We found another litter tier. Um, and then it's just like, well, I'll be right there. And he's like right there. <laughs> and then the next time he starts the call and he says, hey, we found him. An, and he's right there again. So he's, he's getting there like faster every time. <laughs> and funny. every time he says, sorry to make you wait. So like, uh, it's funny um, each time. But this leads to the final flower. Uh, where he reveals uh, a precious memory. He recalls that there was a very special place to him. He gives Tubi and INS a key for an elevator in the shopping mall and then tells them that uh, he needs to stay there to while reflect on it. So then you go down that elevator, and this is where Kaine's shack, surrounded by lunar tears, can be found. And Emil yeah. is there and he reveals that it was a place where uh, uh, the original version of himself, so he's a, one of the copies, but his original self protected this place long ago uh, mm -hmm. explains the background that, that he was created as a weapon um, the war of the aliens provoked the original Emil to create copies of himself Emil reveals that he was one among the countless Emils but the more Emils there were the more Emil's memories became fragmented um, the duplicate Emil reveals that the real Emil spent a lot of time here with people he loved admitting that they were tough in sad times, the memories of which were ultimately valued by Emil uh, as his greatest treasure, but he lost that the more he duplicated himself. 9S asks him where the original Emil is, and he admits that uh, he doesn't know. He thanks the pair, and this is the part that I, I, I kind of really liked, is there's no way of them knowing now, because 
the, the memories have been so fragmented. Who, who knows who the real original one was? Anymore. Yeah, who? Yeah, he they could would, be. Yeah, I know. Talking to the original right now, and he wouldn't know. And he wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. So I liked that touch. Yeah, that's. Um, cool. And this kind of plays more into which I won't uh, continue to go on about, but death being the loss of memory. Oh, uh, sure. That being a certain form of yes. death. Emil yeah. is dead now for even though we've got these copies of his powers yeah, and his, yeah. his voice and in temperament or whatever, right. maybe personality remnants of that there. Um, the original Emil from the first game is now dead because the memories are gone and we don't, we can't even identify who the real one was anymore because of that. Now, uh, this leads to, this would be now as you're playing as a two. So much later in the game, you can come across this secret boss fight with Emil. So the one that's in like the shopping cart, not the shopping cart, the the, the shop that yeah, yeah. he drives around. Um, you find him out kind of in the desert. And, and the, the fight is a little bit similar to that big snake Hegel thing. It's, mm. it's a bunch of Emil heads. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Right? That's funny. Um, but they say some interesting things as you're fighting them. They say eternity... It hurts. It really hurts. Why just us? Why do we have to? We must kill them all. We don't need it. We don't need this world. So they're, they're living this life, this eternal life of pain and suffering in a meaningless existence or whatever universe mm -hmm. the Yokotaro has committed or created here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, those are what happened to my clones. Years of multiplying, years of fighting and wars, their sense of self just deteriorated. I need to sell things with them on my own. Um, this is what the shopping Emil says about the other ones that are trying to kill you. They say, we tried our best in the rain and the wind and the storm. Even when our companions died, we kept fighting. But our eternal war, our eternal pain, our eternal pain, it screamed at us. It told us there was nothing of value to protect in this world. The world had no meaning. It screamed at us. You, all of you, the pain, the sadness, this desperation, you know nothing about it. And then shopping Emil says, but even so, all of this is wrong. No matter how hard or how painful, they never gave up. They kept fighting because they believed they could overcome someday. Isn't that right, Kaine? Even if it's pointless, you still have to do it. So this is the debate about if it's meaningless... You still have yeah. to try anyways. You still have to find purpose in it. The whole existentialist argument yes, yes, is yes. all here. So kind of hammers that home a little more. This is the world my friend tried to save, and that's why it's important to me. Mm. Um, now, <laughs> so this goes into an ending why. I didn't like – it just take too much time to go through every ending because there's an ending for every letter of the alphabet. yeah. Yeah. But ending Y was interesting. <laughs> really? So when it kind of cuts to black at the end of this, it says the Emils caused their fusion reactors to go out of control, turning the planet into a dead chunk of rock, tumbling yeah. through a vast <laughs> vacuum of uncaring universe. Near Autonoma, <laughs> ending Y, heady battle. <laughs> heady battle. Oh, heady. heady. With the okay. Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Being in the brackets. That's pretty funny. What if the game ended that way? Uh, apparently it can <laughs> if you do it this way so um so yeah that's kind of i think this would be the largest sort of like side quest sort of connection between near and uh near automata and near replicant or gestalt i think 
maybe the biggest one that actually relates in some way to the game's main story is the Devil and Popola connection, but we've kind of already covered that. Um, outside of that, there was the, um, you know, that little scene that plays out that talked about the the origin of consciousness for the machines. There's a machine oh, that came out of the volcano. The volcano, yeah. Yeah, and we were so kind of like confused about that. I had this whole mythological reading to that. Um, <laughs> and that's how story, a story can really happen, and the way it's told a thousand years later becomes mythological, right? So yeah. the mythical elements are, are you know, that's, that's how stories stay being told for a thousand years, is that they kind of adopt these archetypal elements to them. Um, that makes them interesting and that, that keeps it propagating even when people have forgotten yeah. the original events. Um, and in this case, it's BP, right? So in Nier uh, Replicant, you fight this monster that kind of is like becoming sentient. I think it's at the junkyard, Yeah, right? it is. And it's BP, and he's he's showing these signs. It's really creepy, but the Nier Automata is not so much about um, robots and machines replicant, and whatnot. Uh, sorry, yeah. Nier Replicant is yeah. not so much about that. That's more Automata. And so Replicant was more about the shades and, you know, um, it didn't really fit quite with the theme. And I was thinking that a shade had uh, possessed, it. possessed mm. bleep, beepy. Now, I don't think that's right. No, it's, it's not. I it's had assumed not. that when I played it, it though. It, the little shade, it was like a child shade named yeah. Khalil, <clears throat> yes. whose mother died. And beepy, well, his official designation, designation is P33, mm. comes in the room. And he's like going to kill this little shade. And the shade's crying. And there's something that sparks him not to do it. Right. And so they become friends and they go like travel around and, and the little shade Khalil I, sort of like teaches P33 all these, all this mm, stuff about what it means to be to alive be and conscious yeah. and what the meaning of life is. Yeah. He sort of gleans a lot of things from that, but I still, according to the story, the fire of Prometheus, where it describes his becoming sentient and because we, mm. our party kills P33 in this battle, right. like just you know, destroys it. But right. it's like all of what it's just, he describes it as little ants, but it's like little, I don't even know if it's really nanomachines, but just yeah. small machines that rebuild him hmm. there in the junkyard area. Okay. Uh, and, from spare parts. Oh, yeah. Spare parts available. and whatever. There's, there's yeah. bits of his, I don't know, neural network or whatever that still sort of yeah. exists that they put together and he become, he comes back again. And, he, and so this whole story sort of focuses on him waking up and then like he falls like for a long time. It's like a huge pit in the earth. Really? I, mean, I, I, I can't remember exactly how long he described the fall being that he fell into, but it takes him, I mean, like weeks, maybe even longer than months to climb out of it. Hmm. Um, but it's basically because he falls and gets damaged and he has to be rebuilt again. And it takes like so long yeah. and he like climbs out again. But along the way, he, he, he reformed himself in a different, um, with a different like design that would be better for climbing out. So oh, he, okay. it wasn't like his original robot form. He like told the robots to fix him and do it in a way to where he had like spider like arms so he could okay. like better climb out of this place. Yeah. But then when he met with other P33 robots they started attacking him and instead of like attacking back he basically just tried to like assimilate them and but he gave them the freedom to choose to do that or not okay some ran away some killed themselves and he's like well, that was pointless why'd you do that the little robots will just fix you anyways and but the ones <laughs> yeah. that like agreed to join him it's like his brain became more and more complex sure, and more sure. capable of 
lifelike sort of thought and consciousness. Yeah. So as he like assimilates, that's a, a theory yeah. of consciousness is that it's it comes down to the complexity yeah. of the brain, and that's what consciousness comes from the complexity. It's it's not one that I subscribe to, but it is a theory. <laughs> but it is so one Yoko that's Taro, out there. yeah. Well, yeah. the thing that confuses me is that BP predates the alien invasion. Yes. So um, the aliens invade and make machines, but yes. then BP shows up as yeah, a he, and he sort of sees the machines and androids fighting each other. Yeah. And is able to recognize that they're only doing that because they're programmed to do that, right? Not because they're choosing to do. And it. he has a more excellent way <laughs> of. Uh, Living life that he wants to share with them. Well, he sort of just bestows will, consciousness. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's in, the interesting in, part. In this theory you're talking about, where the complexity of the brain yeah. leads to the birth of consciousness, right? Yeah. If such a theory is correct, let's just go along that thought experiment. Sure. Yeah. Then consciousness would be a quantifiable thing. Right. Right. Exactly. It would yeah. be something that you could then, like in a computer. Yeah. Copy. Once you and... have this number, you have this <laughs> amount of consciousness. Yeah. yeah. It becomes something. Um, I think that's why a lot of scientists want that to be true. Yeah. Because that would, it would become it, very utilitarian. It would beca- give hope that you could actually understand it. Yeah. And... <laughs> also that you could capture it and manipulate it. Yeah. And, yeah you yeah. could, you know, copy and paste it into <laughs> exactly. another thing. Exactly. But anyway, that's essentially what he does. It's yeah. like huh. he, he bestows consciousness uh, onto the machines living. And then that, that legend of the God coming out of the mountain yeah. and giving them and intelligence them. Yeah. yeah, became the story that was perpetuated in the machine network. But, uh, at this point he wasn't even, he didn't even consider himself an individual anymore. And this goes all along the whole line of individualist versus collectivist sure. thinking. But is it because he had, um, assimilated, assimilated so many, so many machines. So he felt like, uh, he, this he is didn't, something he didn't feel like it was appropriate to refer to yeah. himself in the first person anymore. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. He was like, I should, I should, do, I should call myself we, not I at this point. Um, Michael Levin, who's a, sorry, electroceutical, like, uh, anyways, he's a neuro- neurology kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he deals a lot with um, electricity and the way that it interacts with biology. Um, but he says, he has this great line. He said, um, all intelligence is collective intelligence. Mm-hmm. And he's referring to humans as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the two sides of the hemisphere, we've talked about this before. I think you were saying there's a documentary you watched where yeah, there was a girl who has one, one part of a brain and like 90% functional, like totally just a normal person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, well, what's that other part doing there? And yeah. there have been a lot of experiments done where you can shut down either hemisphere of the brain yeah. and you'll get different responses as though they're different people. Yeah. Um, but the intelligence that we as humans kind of have that we think of as being me or I is actually a collection of different things. It's mm-hmm. our body communicating in a thousand different ways. And then us as the ego finally determining, you know, what, what comes out. Right. But, the, the line that all intelligence is collective intelligence is um, interesting, especially as it relates to AI or machines and things like that, where it's a bunch right. of separate, you know, like modules and nodes kind of communicating in a way that seems, you know, universal. This is also another reason why I would say was we talked about the hyper organism of when people kind of give themselves to this greater group and then the group kind of has its own uh, form of uh, it becomes its own agent in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. And it's because 
all intelligence is collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so the collective intelligence of the hyper entity, which is the group of a thousand people, um, is the thousand intelligences all giving up to this one like super intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas in your, in you, it's just all of your organs and the different parts of your brain firing and, and, but it's still collective either way. It's collective. That's I, I get a kick out of that. I don't know if anyone else cares about that. (laughs) No, it's, it's fascinating. In fact, I just was thinking about it. I don't even think I did this intentionally, but in in the novel that I'm writing, like the mythology that I made up for it, it's basically I remember an individualist uh, god yeah. versus a collective god ah. uh, battling from like the creation of the universe or oh, whatever. Man. And we, I, we could I, talk I, about I kind of just realized. <laughs> wait a second. I, <laughs> this is this point is something that is sort of like maybe an emergent like. Uh, theme in the book that I'm writing, this whole balance between the collectivist and individualist, which is the thing I've struggled with in my own life for a long time, but it's fascinating stuff. It really is. um, Okay, so that's Fire of Prometheus, which is the P33 thing and its connection to this game. And that's as far as I was concerned, like the major things I cared to kind of Those are the big ones. (laughs) Some people may be a bit disappointed that a lot of the things where we said, oh, there's a connection to Nier, we probably said it a dozen times in the podcast. Yeah. Um, we, I just don't know to go over all of them. A lot of it was like, you can write a boar. Or, yeah. well, you can write a moose. Or I think you could write oh, a boar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyways, that's a Nier. You can write boars in Nier. Um, and just the way the robots really resemble the shades mm-hmm. in so many different ways. Yeah. Right? And a lot of this stuff, a lot of Nier Automata is reusing certain uh, themes from Nier Replicant. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, we aren't really going to go into every little thing. There, yeah. There's a weapon called the rod. I think like a metal iron rod, a metal rod, something like that. And it is a weapon from yeah, the replica. Yeah, they have re- weapons. You can read a bio on it that mm-hmm. says like, yeah, it's an old. There's, I think there's a couple different weapons or at least skins that you can get that are. Oh, there's a skin yeah. for. Um, Kine, I think. I think so. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the pod. You can skin the pod as Grimoire Vice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it'll. Yeah. It's, that's basically what the pod is. It yeah. just shoots arrows all the yeah, time. Right. So, yeah. but anyway, yeah, we can't go over everything that the similarities are there. Those of you who are, wanted us to talk about it. Um, no, this you, is the opportunity you, for them to, I was contribute. going to say, I yeah. was going to say, By, you, you noticed it. Yeah. And part of what we encourage people to do is to really read the comments. Yeah. Um, a lot of those things have been pointing out, pointed out through other episodes. And, um, I think it's really cool. Um, I think if you are listening to our podcast without reading the comments, you are doing yourself a disservice. Yes. Uh, there's a lot. The collective intelligence yes. of this podcast yeah, that's great is way to put much it. more than just me and Mike yeah. and a camera. It's 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 happening. You know, It happens on our Discord chat for Patreon. It's happening in the comment section of our YouTube videos. We will often incorporate that stuff into the next videos. We just couldn't for this one. It's so hard to know how to deal with the, the spoiler stuff. It is. It's really frustrating. And I, I know I, I sympathize with people who are like, just talk about the spoilers. <laughs> Everyone is so sensitive about spoilers, but can't there be one podcast in the world that just talks about this all spoiler free um or sorry spo- with, with spoilers with not spoiler free yeah. um i we can't provide that to you i guess well at least <laughs> not, not in its fullness at least for now um well there's I, the anime that just came out i mean i'm yeah. sure there could be room for another addendum in the future as yeah. we watch the anime that might be a patreon thing that people want us to watch sure um in fact, that's probably a pretty good idea for the next could uh, be, Patreon. We could put do, that on there. Yeah. Is that anime? Um, but there, there will be other opportunities for us to revisit a lot of this stuff. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, this is something that I, we haven't had a chance to discuss yet because no. there are going to be a lot of people saying, don't change anything from the current format. We love it the way it is. A lot. Some like people 99%. Saying, We'd love for you to change this and that. <laughs> yeah, that's and true. That's true. ultimately, kind of where I've fallen as I've been reading these opinions is like uh, what's important in the end is kind of just like what what is it that we want this to be? Right. And um, I love... I, I, the thing that I don't want to lose with the sort of like uh, book club format um, and, and people being able to play along for the first time, I don't want to lose that part of it. There's yeah, too yeah. much good that comes out of that for me in, in how I engage oh, totally. with this yep. that I don't want to lose it. So we're probably and not going to do this where we just take spoilers it. off the table from yeah. the top. And just be like, okay, we're going to do that. Because we play too many games that the one of us have not played. Yes. Yet. And and that'll just, I don't know. I, it, it'll be too difficult for us to uh, always be talk about spoilers like that. Yes. So that's probably not going to change. Um, that being said, I will repeat again, probably many more times again in the future, that this, this podcast is not really about the, it's not about like the, the story beats and like the lore and like connecting everything together. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that on YouTube. You can find for people who are passionate about that. People are passionate about theory crafting. People are passionate oh, yeah. about lore. People are passionate about, you know, sort of like an accurate recounting for people who might've not might've been confused about the story. This is what happened. Sure. Yeah. yeah and this yeah. is what you missed in this scene context that helps you understand how we got from A to Z right. kind of thing. From a super like completionist perspective. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that out there. Yeah. This podcast isn't that. This podcast is more what broad. Are, what are we to take away from what this means? Uh, yeah. what, what, what is it that the, the, the story is trying to tell us? Uh, how do we relate to that? How do we take some of that in, into ourselves? How do we learn and grow from that? So that's more about what what yeah. we're doing. It's more of a literary analysis, not so I, much. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyways, that's always going to be at the center of what we're doing and uh, what the intention of the podcast is. So, if we miss, well, you didn't talk about this point or that point. Typically, it will be because I'm not sure how I can comment on that in relation to that some kind of central core yeah. thing we're looking we're to actually to analyze. Yeah. But if if there is a time when that happens, of course, bring it up and say, hey, uh, I think this relates in this way or that way. But if you're frustrated by the fact, which is my real point, that we're not getting to every single beat and connecting every dot, mm -hmm. uh, it's probably just because maybe you're misunderstanding what we're trying to do with this. Yeah. Uh, so. And yeah. sometimes there will be oh, – okay, but here's the thing, though. Um, I hope you trust us at this point that we <laughs> will direct people towards the comment section. Yeah. Uh, we have done it many times. Um, the, our comment section is fire. It's awesome. Um, and if anybody has anything to add, add it. And we almost every other episode, we tell people to read the comments. Mm. And so um, hopefully that as well as, you know, um, if, it's, if it's a good insight and, you know, it usually gets upvoted and, you know, you can still help contribute to people's experience of this podcast yeah. um, in the comments section. For sure. Now, there's two comments I want to read from last okay. week that I thought were awesome. Um, uh, this one kind of just, I thought was a great way to summarize what that core central thing is. 
for both games. Okay. And and a way of tying ah, the two yes. of them together. Yeah. And this I this is the this is the only connection between the two games I care about. <laughs> exactly. That I really care about. <laughs> um, Good. So this is from Nikhil Kapoor. This is how I've come to view the two near games. Near replicant Gestalt asked the question, "Why do people fight each other?" And it had multiple answers to that because we can't communicate to each other because we have a desire for vengeance because we want to protect what we cherish in the world, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And all these yeah. answers for why do we fight? Near Automata asked many questions about the nature of humanity's existence, essence, and purpose. Are we just naturally predisposed to violence? Will we ever figure out the purpose of our existence? What's the point of living? And the game ultimately answers these questions in the same way. It's kind of up to you, but don't give up. Near Replicant asked mm. one or uh, asked one question with many answers to it, and Near Automata asked many questions with one answer for them all. Right. I thought that was really astute uh, way of kind of looking at this. Yeah, right? that was real. I love it when people can boil down, can distill, yeah. or compress a game to like a few sentences yeah. that just like really resonate. It's like and a brilliant skill. Yeah, a brilliant is. skill to have yeah. that I often don't have. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very long-winded way of making points, and so it always it always impresses me when yeah. people can take something <gasps> that complex and say it in such an incredibly succinct way. Absolutely, yeah. I thought that was a brilliant comment. So thank you for that. Very good. Uh, that was great. Um, the second one. <clears throat> that I wanted to highlight here comes from Nobody. Uh, and this is about Ending E. Uh, what Ending E was about is really interesting, not only for its use of the player's direct agency and participation in its execution, but also for its more optimistic and positive message in such a grim, dark franchise. At face value, we show delight that, wow, Yoko Taro can, in fact, expand his horizons and for once make a happier ending. We dwell <laughs> in such reassurances until we start looking no further than the cornerstone themes of Nier Automata itself. On the one hand, to say that Yoko Taro doesn't make happy endings would be a disservice and a textbook Scotsman argument to his meta-level craftsmanship. There is so much more to it than that. It showed that no matter how far he has come and grown as a writer and a game designer over the years and the many perspectives he's had on the world, the roads would all still lead to the very same sobering conclusion while still keeping the approach more or less refreshing. In Nier Automata's ending E, it ties with one of the game's overall existential themes of false hope deception and fruitless endeavors and struggles in conjunction with Yoko's use of irony, contradiction, unreliable narration, juxtaposition, and gaslighting. <laughs> in our attempts to dismantle a seemingly broken, monotonous, and cyclical system, we've only replaced it with a new one, emphasizing how the we-make-our-own-meaning existentialist mindset merely covered up the very inconvenient truths about the meaning and purpose of life. Are we really being humanistic in the ending if we're fighting, if what we're fighting for is built on a lie? We forged a semblance of a new hope in the face of pointlessness, only to realize we have exactly done what the androids did, making a comforting lie regarding humanity's survival on the moon. Plato, this is uh, Plato, the Republic. He talks about the noble lie. Yeah. Your society needs to have a noble lie around which uh, people can coalesce. Yeah, that's... And uh, the question is, does it have to be a lie? <laughs> and Plato would say, well, according to Plato, yes. Yeah. 
Uh, this is uh, Final Fantasy X with Yevon, right, as well? Yes, yes, right. absolutely. We brought 2B, 9S, and A2 <gasps> back to life, free from the strings of Yorha, etc., only to realize they're not really free, just under new management. Uh, yep, we yep, yep. defied fate by literally fighting the game's credits, only to realize we have effectively de dehumanized and massacred the game's real-world creators in such a blatant power revenge fantasy. We sacrificed our own save files in the end to show our heartfelt gratitude and support to those who have lent their hand to us, only to realize that, with all that said and done, we have influenced who knows how many impressionable people out there into taking this doomed endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's hilarious. As Shepard put it in the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, there is still no shortage of patriots, no shortage of volunteers. Anytime soon, years after Near Automata first came out, there are still people out there sacrificing their save files. For the idealistic and naive, desperate it's really easy to see why ending E is a hopeful, positive, and happier-than-usual conclusion. But the sobered-up, if cynical, would better see it as yet another clear-cut tragic ending, in this case illustrating the dangers of toxic positivity and heroism, blind faith, fantasy entitlement, and sunk-cost fallacy of these struggles. <laughs> the parasocial relationships players make with the characters and the human connections fostered through these hopelessly flawed mindsets. <laughs> Yoko Taro had pulled off what might be just one of the greatest acts of social engineering in video gaming, and we <laughs> fell for the bait, hook, line, and sinker. It's pretty chilling, and as overrated as it sounds, it said a lot about society and humanity as a whole. I found that to be a, it's a long one. It's a lot to break down even that, <laughs> yes. but a fascinating a well perspective. This is a perspective on ending E. I have never heard anybody else yeah. voice or or really like, uh, you know, input before. Um, I will say there is a noble lie to ending E as well yeah. from Yoko Taro, and that is the way the whole system works. Yeah. I... Who, um, <laughs> in, order, in order for somebody to sacrifice their save file for somebody else, who was the first person to do it? Right. Right. There... The game, it doesn't work the way they tell you it works. No, it doesn't. That, that's all. That's, that's, that's actually oh. something I was thinking the, of But, it, but it's a noble lie in that it mostly works how they say it works. <laughs> and, and it feels good, and it's a cool thing to base like an, like a, an idea off of. It's cool, like theoretically. It's really cool that yeah. he was able to pull this off. Um, it can't possibly work the way that he says it works. Uh, therefore, he's lying when, yeah. he, when, he, when you're doing this. But it's a lie with like meaning. And anyways, it's yeah. a noble, noble lie. How did your f the first player, there was a first player out there and who beat Nier Automata who the beat fourth, it, for the first time. But it's impossible. And there was you nobody else it. who had beaten it. Yes. So nobody there to sacrifice their same file to help him through the impossible uh, yes. <laughs> shooting but section. But you can't beat it without someone sacrificing yes. their profile. Right. So anyways, it's there's a bit of a, yes. a circular problem. That's true. Here. But the noble lie, you know, notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> it's the sentiment. It's still, it still feels cool, yeah. <laughs> and it's that's actually part of the whole theme, too is the f the sentiment the idea of something the hope or belief yeah. in a sentiment almost that probably isn't really true yeah yeah is what makes your life less miserable to live sure, sure. in a meaningless existence <laughs> that's a way yeah that's but a way it's of but at it's it. not actual it, it's built on a lie you almost have to do that right 
because as we said a little bit in the last episode with that, who, who killed the George? Curiosity killed the George? Yes. There, there are, are no, no answers. answers. <laughs> but but how do you live? Well, you need something like an answer to something in order to like start living. You need yeah. a foundation of some sort that's not just shaky sand, right? You need something to stand on that's like mostly stable, mm. even if one day you're going to realize it was just a pile of rocks, right? Mm. But hey, it held you up for the time being, right? Yeah. Um, if, if, you know, if the, there are no answers and nothing's true, you know, not only is there no point to anything, it is that there is no anything. There is no thing to exist, right? Yeah. That there is, because truth, objective truth does exist in the world, things, there, the world exists, right? Yeah. We just can't find it. We just can't, like, nail down what the objective truth is. Yeah. We can never do it. It's almost like that principle of calculus that we talked about earlier, where it's like you get halfway closer and halfway closer, like a parabola that's, like, yeah. slowly. Well, maybe not a parabola is not the right word. But, um, yeah, you're getting closer and closer and closer, but they never touch. You never yeah, actually you never get actually the actual get truth. get there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you just keep getting closer, and you will keep getting closer forever. Yeah. You will never actually get it, there. You feel like you're this close, but that, that space is infinite. Yes, <laughs> is the yes, crazy part. Exactly. That's you're actually infinitely says. far away from, yes. from ever reaching an answer. And um, yeah. that is depressing thing to think about. Yep. So therefore, you're <laughs> supposed to think about the noble lie, not about exactly. how depressingly far away, even though it looks close, you are to a right answer. Because with the noble lie, you can live. You can do other stuff now. Yeah. You can go do stuff. You don't have to worry about the, um, you know the way society functions or you don't have to worry about a lot of things because it's just assumed you assume it and then you, you move forward and you can have friends and play video games, right? <laughs> like you can like fiat currency. This is a pretty yeah. good idea of the noble lie that we're living through right now. Mm. Fractional reserve banking and fiat <laughs> currency and whatever else that, you know, the Western governments do now. It's a lie that that paper yeah. is worth the money that 100%. the government says that it's worth. It's yeah. a complete lie. Yeah. But as long as everyone believes it, it's a functional it's functioning lie. system. So yeah. y- it works yeah. until until it doesn't. Until and, it doesn't. Yeah. And then you figure out some other one to replace it with. I know because you can't <clears throat> ever actually get the real the yeah. real truth. It's too difficult. It's been fun thinking about this stuff with you guys. Yeah, it's appreciate awesome. you joining us. I've got a little bit more to say. You got more? I do have a little right. more to say. I was going to bring up some philosopher, some s- s- calculus dude. His name starts with a Z. It's like Zeke or Z. Anyways, it's a funny name, but he talks about how nothing ever touches because of that exact uh, reason. Right. Um, but I do have uh, a little bit about the uh, second book of Enoch. Mm. Um, so as I was reading this, there is, okay, so Melchizedek is a character in the Bible. Anyways, he predates the flood, but he wasn't on Noah's Ark. Yes. So what gives, right? right. (laughs) (laughs) What gives? Um, So the Book of Enoch talks about how Melchizedek was born. It was an immaculate conception. So Melchizedek's earthly father is somebody named Nir, N-I-R, pronounced Nir. And this is the most interesting part. So Nir dies in the flood, but his son, this was very important, Nir knew the flood was coming. And he knew he was going to die, but he also knew Melchizedek was very important and he wanted to save him. He's not the real father. He's the stepfather. Mm. He's like Joseph to Jesus. It's like kind of the dad, but like not really biologically the dad. So Nir was saying, hey, we need to save 
this baby Melchizedek, he's important, right? So what Nir decides to do is send Melchizedek up into the heavens so that Melchizedek will be preserved while humanity is destroyed down mm. on earth. And the idea is that God will then send Melchizedek back to the earth after the flood and then humanity can kind of like restart up again. I feel like this is very interesting uh, because, yeah, he's miraculously put back onto earth. So sending humanity into heaven before the apocalypse and then humanity dying, hoping that one day it can still continue afterwards uh, is really cool. So I came across this recently and I don't know that anyone's quite made this connection yet. I wonder if this is something that people have known for a long time and, or I wonder, I couldn't find anything. I, never I typed anything near Enoch near automata two, <laughs> and I just didn't, nothing came up. I don't know that I'm the first one to see this, uh, but the Enoch stuff is very important in Yoko Taro's universe. He talks about the watchers. He talks about mm-hmm. um, a lot of stuff that comes from the books of Enoch. Yeah. And so the name near being a person who like sends humanity in this like last bid for, for the survival of the species being like, go, Go and live, right? And even Noah's Ark in general is basically the same kind of idea, right? You send the humanity away while everything gets destroyed so that it can come back. But Melchizedek is a really good one um, because Nir is a steward, not the actual father. Right. And I think that's I think that's good, especially for something like Nir Automata because it's like there's it's like a proxy. It's like this isn't my kid, but it's a human and it's important and it's almost like he's um, what would you call it? an android <laughs> he's he's not really connected with the future of humanity in any real way yeah yet he has this drive to like save a child that's not even his anyways i feel like there was a connection there so that's interesting it's that's, I, an, I apo- that's be, an apocryphal i could be wrong about this book right yes yeah. it's part of the well it was ancient jewish canon it was written probably second century no probably third century bc mm. um and then the Christians used it for a long time too, but around fourth, fifth century, the Christians and Jews both just like stopped reading the Book of Enoch. They were like, they both dropped. The Jews thought like it was too anymore. Christian, yeah, and uh, then the Christians didn't include it in their canon, and it became heretical. And they said, "Don't read this book." A lot of people still read it, like the Ethiopian Christian churches, and in England and elsewhere, they were still reading the Enoch books. Uh, but the Catholic and the Orthodox churches were, for the most part, saying like, "Don't read this. Stop reading it. That's not a good book anymore." Um, so Crazy. very few copies survived into the modern period. Wow. Um, but this one's the Slavonic one. So it's one of the Eastern European versions of Enoch. Very interesting. It's really cool. Um, and then I just, I just feel like I would be regretful if I didn't bring up something about something about how this game is very, um, it is existentialist. It's, it's awesome. I really love it. I love exploring the philosophy. <laughs> I love the idea of Nier Automata, it's very meaningful. Mm-hmm. It means a lot to me playing the game. Um, and I really, really enjoy it. But I do have to posit my personal feelings on the matter <laughs> that, that that there is meaning in the universe. That mm. it does, and, and it may not be what you think. In fact, it's almost certainly not, not what, what you think. think. <laughs> it's not what I think, but it exists, right? And I, I have some ways of talking about this, none of which are very good, but I will say that the universe is meaningful, that the existentialist thing in my mind is less us creating our own meaning and more us discovering meaning that mm. is already there in the universe, mm. that the universe is laden with meaning. It's, it's pregnant with, it's full of, of, of meaning and value. And um, it's, it's just waiting to be discovered, right? And humans are in a very unique position to be able to 
create and observe and participate in things like beauty and goodness and truth to whatever degree we can actually know it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like one of the examples I have here is that the C ending is called meaningless code. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) Like what in (laughs) order, so in order for a word to be a code, Mm. it has to have meaning. (laughs) Otherwise it's just nothing. It's just, it's not a thing, right? Code is code because it, it means something and your DNA is full of code, right? It's information, right? Mm. But it means stuff. It's code. And there is no meaningless code. And the, the I don't know, however it came about, it, it's obviously there as something that clearly has meaning, right? I feel like it really has meaning. And that life itself is something that comes about through like a harmony with the universe. As we talked about like Pythagoras and music, right? Music, the fact that music exists is mind-blowing. But the fact that it has like the octave that Pythagoras figured out, the um, eight steps up to, you know, the next like similar song, um, like wavelength, but that's like half the length. And so it, it has this harmony, right? That, that the meaning of music and that the meaning of life and that the meaning of anything, a beauty in itself is something that we observe when we notice things in harmony with some like latent principles of the universe itself. Mm -hmm. And when all of a sudden we hear music and it seems like this beautiful thing that's coming into our ears that we didn't create, that humans kind of just like, it's just a thing that we more or less discovered, right? That Pythagoras was able to kind of like determine, holy cow, the octave, right? The coolest thing ever. Um, And that we're able to perceive the meaning that was already there. And that, um, that life itself exists in this unique place because it is in harmony with whatever invisible principles of the cosmos exist, right? Mm. That life, that not only the cosmos can exist, but that life can exist within it, mm. right? And that there is, there is meaning there in that in and of itself and that this life can then perceive things like music and beauty and goodness and truth and all the other things that are there. They are there. They just need to be discovered. And I think one of the jobs of humanity is to reject the um, maybe more consumerist or the utilitarian idea of things. Mm. When you see a forest, this is what Heidegger talks about this. If you see a forest, don't think how much lumber, how much money you could make if you sold the wood for lumber, (laughs) but instead appreciate the beauty of the forest that you are in a unique position to be able to, to recognize, you know, Mm. as a human, as a life form, you know, existing in harmony with the cosmos itself. Um, and that I feel like if, if humanity could gear ourselves more towards the perception of the goodness and truth and beauty that is already present within the universe, that we would be able to counteract a lot of the utilitarianism that is kind of consuming the world right now. Mm. And that is drowning, we're drowning in this, you know, people trying to uh, use something to their benefit or to, to make money or to sell things um, instead of to to enhance the beauty and truth and goodness that, that already exists. Okay, yeah. that's what I got. Um, <clears throat> I had a comment here from Reichsbird saying, sounds like Kaysen is talking about the concept of logos. Ooh. The thumb up. Um, that is correct. I, I know, I, the only reason I'm going to say this is because I know there probably will be some people watching who might mm-hmm. uh, have counterpoints or uh, another perspective on some of the things you're saying. And so, like, I'm not going to, I'm not like, necessarily, I'm right. 
like voice that as much as to mm -hmm. say like just in in the fact of having the thought where people might go with like get, offering a counterpoint to that. You can push back. I don't care. I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just. Uh, sort of like preemptively thinking about where people might go with that. Yeah. My only thought to add to this is, uh, you know, I don't know if there is meaning to existence or life or the universe or not. Um, I, I, I think I tend to lean towards not, but like I mm. honestly just don't know. <laughs> well, that's, but, I mean, yeah. But um, for me, like, like kind of the point I'm at, I've, I've, let go of my attachment to needing to know an answer to that question. Oh, cool. I feel like that that has helped me a lot. Like, because people can get really wrapped up in this, like mm. really bogged down by, wait a minute, like there is no purpose. There is no meaning. It can be a really heavy, hard, it, uh, people do not like it. just the human being <laughs> as an animal does not like the, uh, does not like to confront that as a concept. That there's no purpose in my life. There's no purpose in this world. Yeah, no. yeah, that's true. So it can really be a depressing thing for people. And so they get really bogged down in the philosophy and like we're doing, you know, talking about all these things. <laughs> and it, it, it can, it can really books. like really become overwhelming. Yeah. And I think the, the one philosophy that has sort of been guiding my life in recent times has been uh, letting go of any attachments uh, mm -hmm. And we talked about this a lot when we Jacob's did Jacob's Ladder. Ladder. Yeah. That's really kind of it. It's like, love the experience. This is what the uh, the video we're talking about, uh, the Curiosity, Killed, Curiosity the Killed the George. It, it's, it's, it's sort of like, um, with the time you've got, you know, like, taking advantage of your ability to love the world around you, to love yes, the people sure. that you're yes. with, to love uh, the gifts that you have, the things that you enjoy, bask in that as much as you can, but let go of your attachments to it. Sure. It's like so important to do that because yeah. then your fear of losing it kind of outweighs and, and eats up all of your time yeah. that you could have had. That's the hardest part. Basking in the love. And so whether there's an answer to this question is up to each person to decide, but don't get too carried away in becoming overwhelmed and stressed out about it let go of your attachment to having to know an answer to whether there's purpose or not and just like enjoy it and just love love your life you know that's hard man but <laughs> but no i think you're right yeah anyway i think that's good and i think that's great um real quick before we end what was your favorite thing about the game <laughs> Ooh, that's a really good question um i think it was the takeaway on this playthrough of the, uh, the that the fear mongering approach to teaching, and this can go onto like any scale. This can go up to governments. This can go up to religions. But it can also come down to how you parent. Oh, it right. can come down to how you give advice to your friends. It can come down mm -hmm. to all of this. Um, do, doing so through fear is, I, I believe, kind of just universally a bad idea. Yeah. I just don't think it really leads to anything good. I think that you could maybe avoid a certain outcome by, you know, like, you, oh, don't do that. And, like, you could take away the risk of mm. something really bad happening. But the fear, living a life in fear is, that's not a good way to live life, I think. I think that you do more harm teaching somebody to be afraid of everything 
hmm. and to to make your decisions in fear than to allow them to take the risks and something bad might happen, but they live a life in which they're unafraid and they're unimpeded and free and happy to, you know, explore and, and do things the way that um, they're inspired to do it. So, yeah, there are inherent risks yeah. in life. But uh, I guess, it, you know, when you were talking about whether there's a hell <laughs> to go to, there, there's more nuance that can come into that discussion. But right. that was kind of my takeaway was uh, get rid of um, living in fear. Get rid of your inclination to teach others to live in fear. That, that's probably the biggest takeaway for me this time, my favorite part of the game. But. I think that's good. I mostly just loved the uh, the way that the game, it really just challenged me a lot. Mm. Um, I've never seen the existentialist like perspective be so well put um, in something like a video game before. Yeah. I've never seen it uh, so powerfully like posed, yet at the same time... Um, have this light this you know yeah. the hope at the bottom of pandora's box <laughs> that's like this thing that's like hey look you know there is there is still you know there is still meaning to be had it's through objective it's you, it is whatever it is you subjective. make of it it's whatever you make of it right yeah. but as i've mentioned this in the past you, um subjective reality is the only reality that you will ever experience mm. i think i brought this up oh, years ago yeah. um that right there is like just <laughs> it, i don't know if if it if it works for you then it works right yeah. and anyways uh, a lot about this game is is really good but it really did um it really did challenge a lot of assumptions i have a lot of um you know preconceived ideas that i have and it helps me to kind of like reanalyze you know parts about just um life in general my mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. I feel like I've been cursed with an open mind, <laughs> <clears throat> which I hate. And I do consider it a curse. I really do. It, um, can, it can be. It and can so be. when I come across stuff like this, I, I never, I, I can't just dismiss things and say, no, nah, no, nah, that's not important. I have to analyze it and, and like inc- assimilate parts of it and incorporate it. And, um, that a game like this, you know, was, uh, was a lot for me to, yeah. uh, to contend with. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I love that about. I know, me game. too. It's so good. I love that about. I, I can't do this for every game though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to take breaks. That's, well, that was what Jurassic Park was supposed to be after I such like know. a heavy, heavy analysis of Jacob's ladder. Of Jacob's ladder. But then, yeah. like Jurassic Park ended up being this. It was supposed to be like a break or just like a fun thing to talk about for one episode, and now we're going to go like three, three. or four the episodes longest one. of Jurassic Park analysis. <laughs> but it's fun. It's a it fun, fun movie and. Anyway, we might need to do well, I, Final Fantasy 16 is next. That's going to be pretty we'll heavy. We'll see, man. We'll see. But um, I don't know. I, I agree with you. It, it's. I feel like it's in some degree you kind of need a break. You need a breather after this. I don't know if we're going to yeah. get it <laughs> with the game we're about to <laughs> play next. We'll see, but, um I know what you're talking about, and uh, yeah, but I love it. Okay, I love it. Well, we do you like do you like folks. do you like Replicant Gestalt or Automata oh, more? Gosh, gameplay <laughs> Automata for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, story wise, I would say Replicant. Same. Um, for sure. Same. Um, and it, it maybe it comes down to the characters. Um, nine S and two B and A two not as compelling as yeah. um, 
Yona yeah. and um, sorry, what's the uh, Kaine and Emil? No, Kaine, and... Emil, um, and then the main character I can't remember. His well, name. he doesn't have. Oh, near basically just near. Yeah, he doesn't have a name. Yeah. but um, I really uh, love those characters so much, and as much as Near Automata has good characters, good story, um, Near Replicant probably um, had the better story and more um, interesting characters in my in my opinion. Um, that being said, Near Automata, my gosh, man, this game's incredible. Yeah. Um, I can't believe he pulled this off. <laughs> Yoko Taro, I cannot believe that he, yeah. he did this. And it's like a smashing success. Yeah. I can't believe it's it. It's phenomenal. Um, I basically feel exactly the same way. So I like the first game better for that yeah. reason. But you know, I even had the thought during the section where you go down the elevator and you see um, Kaine's house. And any basically at any point in this game where they had a leitmotif, a theme, a no. musical theme That's from the right, first Kine's game. That's right, theme, yeah, yeah. Any time that happened, I just went like, oh my gosh, the music from the first game yeah, is so good. It's so good. <laughs> and, and it's I, good in this too. I wonder if you'll ever have that feeling of when you hear a Nier Automata soundtrack again yeah, in the future, thing. if you'll have that same reaction. Yeah, that, that's maybe possible. Not. That's possible. Yeah. But like, Nier Automata's soundtrack is phenomenal. It really is good. Oh, Especially good. the ending credits music is like just oh, yeah, really yeah. good. But the first game's music is just like yeah. something I can't even put words it's, to. It's so special. It's, it's so good. Serene. It is it's so, unbelievably so good. good. And yeah. that's one large part of it. But the other part, I think, is characters, like you're saying. I just really feel more attached to those characters. And that's really important for story. But um, they're both, like, absolutely phenomenal. But uh, Mick's got something for us here. Oh. I would love to hear a podcast episode talking um, stock, taking, taking, taking stock of the games you played for the past or for the podcast so far. Which of them was the most profound to you? <coughs> Gosh, um, that sounds like a New Year's podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some kind of like wrap up sort of thing. Yeah, well, think about that. What did we learn? We'll think about what? That. Yeah, yeah, and, and Vice, Vice, Grimoire Vice, yeah, another Grimoire character Vice. from the first game. Love Vice. Pods, pod, pod is great. I love the pods too, though. But Grimoire, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, that's it guys thank you for watching I uh, look forward to next week uh, with Final Fantasy 16 hope you guys enjoy the game comes out tomorrow um, I'm going to go talk about it right now and release a video about the demo so you will have already seen this as well probably but we're going to record it now talk to you later peace out peace